Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary PSL. Please join our lead pastor, Mike Wiggins, for the message, The Rock. All right, so in our text today, which is just five verses, Peter's gonna use several rock-like words in order to describe Jesus Christ. In verses four through eight, so that's where we are, 1 Peter chapter two, four through eight. In verses four through eight, he uses the word stone three times, the phrase living stone one time, the word rock one time, and then the word cornerstone two times. You add it all up, you see that there's seven rock-like words and phrases used to describe Jesus in just five verses. And so of course, these words and phrases, they tell us something. They tell us that Jesus, our Jesus, he's strong. <laughs> and he's steadfast. And he's sure. And that the Lord, like a giant rock, is somebody that you and I can rely on. He's somebody that you, we, we can count on. He's somebody that will never shift or give way. The Lord Jesus Christ is our rock in this fallen world. And he's not just any rock, and he's not just any stone, he's absolutely the cornerstone. Okay, so that term cornerstone is one of the main themes, if not the main theme, of our scripture today. And I want you to know up front that Peter, in his letter, chapter two, verse seven, concerning this topic of the cornerstone, he's gonna go back a thousand years and he's gonna pull out a verse from Psalm 118. In fact, let's go ahead and look at it now. All right, so 1 Peter chapter two, verse seven. He says, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected, can you guys say the word rejected? That's what you don't wanna do. <laughs> The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Psalm 118, most likely written by David a thousand years before Christ, and it's regarded as what's known as a messianic psalm. In other words, it's one of those psalms that pointed Israel forward to their coming Messiah. I wanna just show you a few verses from Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. <laughs> it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes, or you could say politicians, right? The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. Now here's the part that pointed Israel to their future Messiah, and I think you're gonna recognize it right away. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O oh Lord, O oh Lord, we pray. Give success. You remember Jesus coming into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey and they're shouting Hosanna. The word Hosanna means save now. What are they doing? What were, what were they doing? They were quoting from Psalm 118. They're quoting this right here. Blessed is he, shouting it at Jesus, who comes 
in the name of the Lord. And now the verse from that same Psalm that Peter quoted, the stone that the builders rejected has become the what? The cornerstone. And so when a building was constructed in ancient times, the cornerstone was the most important stone of all. The cornerstone was taken from the, from the quarry, it was chiseled to near perfection, it was placed by the construction workers at the corner of the structure so that the builders could be guided by the cornerstone. The cornerstone, a cornerstone was vital because from it, every other stone was measured and every other stone was aligned. Okay, so what did the cornerstone do? It ensured that the rest of the building was straight, the rest of the building was strong, and the rest of the building was secure. All right, and so what does that mean? Well, Psalm 118, written a thousand years BC, was shouting to Israel that your coming Messiah is gonna be the cornerstone of Psalm 118, verse 22. That he, when he comes, Israel, he's gonna be the most important person to ever take breath into his lungs. He's gonna be the one that everybody needs to align and measure their lives by. And you would think, right, that somebody that special, whenever he came, would have been embraced by Israel, but that is not what happened. God, who is transcendent above the space-time material universe, God, who is not limited in any way the way we are limited, from eternity, he saw what would really happen when Messiah came. And it's a prophecy. And what did the prophecy say? We'll see it again. The stone that the builders, what's the word? Rejected has become the cornerstone. And so in the fulfillment of their own scriptures, when the Messiah came, Israel, as a nation, the leaders, the majority of people rejected their Messiah. Now you need to know that Psalm 118 verse 22 is quoted a lot in the New Testament. Jesus himself quoted it. We're gonna see that in a minute. And the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, all record Jesus quoting Psalm 118.22. And not just Jesus. Paul, in Ephesians chapter two, verse 20, he referred to Psalm 118.22. And not just Jesus, and not just Paul, Peter, in Acts 4.11, quoted Psalm 118.22, and then he quoted it again in our text today. What do you think's going on? Here's what's going on. God, through the pages of the New Testament, is now shouting to the world that my son, Jesus Christ, is the cornerstone of Psalm 118.22. My son. My son, who so many people disregard. My son, Christ, he's the rock. And regarding this theme today, we're gonna see in our text, as well as some other passages, this right here. Christ is the rock. To Israel, he's a stumbling stone. That's bad news. But to the church, he's a stone of stability. He's a stable stone. That's the good news. We always gotta start with the bad news before we get to the good news. So we start with Israel's rejection. Right now, if you're looking at 1 Peter chapter two, verse four, can you say amen? So I know you're 
following in God's word. And so just the first phrase from verse four, and then we're gonna jump down to verse seven. Peter, writing to the Christian community, as you come to him, Jesus, a living stone, he's risen. Now look at this, rejected by men. And now with that in mind, please jump down to verse seven. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, here it is, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And now Peter, the Old Testament scholar, quotes from another Old Testament verse, Isaiah 8:14, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They, the nation of Israel, stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, I don't want anybody to misunderstand Peter here. Peter is not saying that God destines people to not believe. <laughs> How, God does not destine people to sin. Unbelief is a sin. How in the world can a holy God destine somebody to sin? It just can't happen. And so what is Peter saying here? What he's saying is that people are destined to be judged because they disregard Christ. In other words, just as people who turn to Christ in repentance and faith are destined to live forever in heaven, so those who reject Christ are destined to live forever in hell. And so when you think about all this, we have to consider the fact that Christ is the rock and we have to consider and come to grips with the fact that a lot of people reject him. And that leads you to your next point. If you're taking notes, to Israel, Jesus was a stumbling stone. A stumbling stone. Now the classic parable that describes how Israel as a nation rejected their Messiah can be found in the parable of the tenants in Matthew chapter 21. All right, and so please hold your place in 1 Peter 2. Take a left, go to the first book of the New Testament. Please turn to Matthew chapter 21. Jesus is speaking to a Jewish crowd, including Israel's leaders of his day. So I want you to picture in your mind Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, the Messiah, He's sharing these parables, and we're gonna start in Matthew 21, verse 33. Verse 33, here we go. Jesus said, here's another parable. And by the way, if you don't mind marking in your Bibles, I'm gonna give you some words to underline. He said, there was a, please underline, master. A master of a house who planted, please underline, vineyard. And he put a fence around it, and he dug a wine press in it, and he built a tower, and he leased it to, please underline, tenants. And he went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his, please underline, servants to the tenants to get his fruit. He has every right to do that. He's the master. He owns the ground. He owns the vineyard. He owns the fruit. He wants some fruit. Verse 35 and the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. And finally, 
he sent, and I want you to shout out the next two words, go ahead, his son. See that? He sent his son to them, saying, they'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. In order to understand this parable, you gotta use this key right here. And so when you think through this, the master is the father, God the father. The vineyard is the nation of Israel. The tenants are the leaders of Israel. The servants are the Old Testament prophets. By the way, I would include John the Baptist in that scenario, who kind of hooks up the old with the new. And then you have the son, the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so I want you to understand, please understand that history is his story. Stay with me here and, and, and get what's going on through the progressive revelation of God's word. During the Old Testament period, century after century after century, all the way up to the time of Christ, the Father entrusted the nation of Israel to the leaders of Israel. But instead of showing love to Israel, what did they do? They enforced legalism. Instead of emphasizing a relationship with God, they emphasized man-made, there was a lot of them, rules and regulations that they heaped up on the people, and those rules, man-made, rules and regulations were on the people like a heavy backpack, right, and it weighed them down and it made them miserable. Instead of feeding the flock, they fleeced the flock, and with force and cruelty, they ruled over them. We're talking about the leaders of Israel. And if you want a good chapter to read later on about what these guys were like, many of them over the centuries, read Ezekiel 34, and you'll get a really clear picture of these guys. The result of this self-serving, arrogant leadership was that Israel yielded little to no spiritual fruit. Now, how many of you guys believe our God is patient and merciful, long-suffering. So what did he do? He kept sending prophet in the Old Testament period after prophet, after prophet, calling on these leaders to repent, calling on the leaders and the people to repent and bear fruit that the Father wants. But instead of listening to the prophets, these leaders abused them, they beat them, they stoned them, they killed them, a lot of them. And so because the father was still so merciful, he sent his son. But what happened when they saw the son? What did the leaders do to Jesus? They said, come, let us kill him. And they murdered Jesus. Now look at verse 40. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, Jesus says, what will he do to those tenants? And they're caught up in the moment. They're all emotional, right? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants. That's very interesting. I'll come back to that. He'll rent out the vineyard to other, other tenants who will give him the fruits in their 
season. That's a very interesting response from the crowd. Now see how Jesus responds and replies to them now in verse 42, verse 42. And Jesus said to them, have you never read, okay, stop right there, everybody look at me real quick. Jesus says this a lot. Have you never read, right? Never read what? What do you guys think? Yeah, he says it, right, in the very next sentence. Have you never read, ladies and gentlemen, why in our generation are more and more churches building their churches on motivational talks as opposed to God's word? What are we doing? Have we never read? <laughs> no wonder we're walking around in the darkness and don't know where to go. No wonder everything's falling apart and we don't know what to do. God showed us what to do. We're not reading it. He says, have you never read in verse 42 the scriptures? And guess what verse Jesus quotes? <laughs> Psalm 118, 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus quoted Psalm 118, why? To show the people his true identity and to show them what's really going on. All right, so what was really going on? What was really going on? What was really going on is that Israel's leaders were about to reject the cornerstone and fulfill their own scriptures in Jesus' day. Why in the world would they reject Jesus? There's lots of reasons. I don't have time to go through all of them. I'll go through one of the main ones with you. I think one of the main reasons that the leaders of Israel looked at Jesus and said, no thank you, was because of this. They wanted a militant Messiah. They wanted a Messiah who's gonna be you know, to, to deliver them from Rome, right? Let's take them. <laughs> and instead of that, instead of getting a militant Messiah, they got a merciful Messiah who wanted to deliver them from their sins, who wanted them to repent, that word that we hardly ever use in the church anymore, who wanted them to repent and turn to him to deliver them from their sins, and they were like, no thank you. Now how does Jesus respond to this? Look again in verse 43. Now, now ladies and gentlemen, I cannot overemphasize how important verse 43 is. Because this is one of the key verses as we understand what God is doing in history. He says, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Wow. And the one who falls on this stone, the cornerstone, Messiah, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will do what to him? Crush him. Everybody look at me, please. Some people say, Jesus? Meek and mild Jesus? Well, listen, just because he, just because he came the first time, as a harmless baby, listen, when he comes again the second time, he's coming as a warrior. Amen. He's coming as a warrior. And so, look at verse 45, I love this. When the chief priests and the Pharisees, you know the guys that he's been talking about in the parable, the tenants, 
hanging out in the crowd, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, well, they perceived that he was talking about them, you think? Now, I, I can't overemphasize verse 43. I'm gonna read it again and explain it to you. So right now, if you're looking at Matthew 21, 43, can you say amen? amen. Please get this. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. What in the world does that verse mean? Here's the, here's the definition right here. Since they rejected their Messiah, the kingdom of God was taken away from the nation of Israel. Now I gotta stop you right there. Please everybody look at me again. I really wanna explain this to you. They rejected their Messiah, the kingdom of God taken from them. Now what you need to know is that in the beginning of the Gospels when John the Baptist and Jesus Christ came on the scene and they said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand and they're preaching this and to Israel, that, ladies and gentlemen, was a legitimate offer of the physical manifestation of the kingdom. But they said no. And it got worse and worse because when you get, and I'm gonna share this and you guys can go deeper later, but when you get to Matthew chapter 12, you know what they're doing? They're ascribing Jesus' miracles. Do you know what the purpose of miracles are? Because when someone does a legit miracle, you better listen to that guy because what he's saying is truth because miracles are given to authenticate the truth. And Jesus is doing all these miracles. They can't deny the miracles. Right, and so what do they do? They say, you know what? He's doing miracles in the power of Beelzebub. He's casting out demons with the finger of Satan. And by saying that, it reveals their heart that they are rejecting the witness of the Holy Spirit of God who's trying to tell them because he loves them that this is the cornerstone, this is the Messiah, and they're saying, no, he's from Satan and they commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit which cannot be forgiven. Matthew chapter 12, and what happens in chapter 13? Switching gears now. Now all of a sudden you see all these kingdom parables, kingdom parables, kingdom parables, kingdom parables, and all those kingdom parables reveal, listen to this, the spiritual or mystery kingdom that is for today, parables that apply to us, the church. Because there isn't right now a physical manifestation of the kingdom. That comes later at the second coming of Christ. There is now a spiritual manifestation of the kingdom because the kingdom of God is in our hearts. And so since they rejected their Messiah, the kingdom of God was taken away from the nation of Israel and it was given to a group that would yield spiritual fruit. I wonder who that is. Well, look around and say, that's you. the church, and we know the rest of the story. Israel's leaders, because they were so jealous, arrested Jesus, they abused Jesus, they put a blindfold on Jesus, they beat Jesus. Beyond recognition, you couldn't even recognize his face, Isaiah 52, end of the chapter there, prophesied 700 years before it happened. They arrested him, they abused him, they beat him, and then they turned him over to Rome. And what did Pilate do? Pilate had Jesus brutally flogged and then cruelly crucified and Jesus died and was buried. 
Now, is that the end of the story? Nope. How do you guys know that Jesus is not a dead stone, he's a living stone, right? He's alive, he's risen. Listen, some of you are still skeptical, some of you are still on the fence, some of you have still not given your life to Christ. You need to understand the fact that he's alive and that is the most important thing of all. He's alive. And if he's alive, that means that he is Lord. You need to submit to him as Lord while there's still time. And so Jesus is the living stone. And three days later, he rose from the dead. He walked out of the grave victorious over sin and death. And then what happened? It gets even better. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And when the sun went up, who came down? You tell me. Holy Spirit of God, and on the day of Pentecost, guess what's born? A new group that's gonna bear the fruit that the Father is looking for, the church of our Lord Jesus. And the church all of a sudden is born. And not only that, it's born and it starts to thrive and it starts to produce fruit as you read Acts chapter two, three, four, five, all the way down to the end of the book of Acts. And what is the church? If you're with me, say amen here. Because if you miss this, then what's gonna happen is you're gonna go off in a different direction like a lot of so-called Christians in the last 2,000 years and you're gonna give in to a sin called anti-Semitism. And that's straight from the pit of hell. So what's the church? Listen, Jews and Gentiles who submit to Jesus Christ and through faith and repentance become one together. That's the church. Jews and Gentiles coming together. Listen, you can't stop God. You guys just sang it in the very first song. You cannot stop God from moving and working and carrying out his plan. And so as you're turning back to 1 Peter right now, I wanna share this with you, that 37 years after Christ's resurrection, the church is thriving. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, John. Thank you, apostles. Thank you, Apostle Paul, for risking your neck and actually not ascribing to churchianity and sitting around in rows once a week and checking a box and thinking, that's my duty. No, Paul actually believes in church planning. He actually believes in sharing his faith with others. And we see God using a man like that and the other apostles, and we see Christianity growing and thriving and spreading across the Roman Empire 37 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The church is doing well. Persecuted, yeah, but it's doing well. What's going on with Israel? Well, they decide they're gonna rebel against Rome. So Caesar sends in General Titus and the Roman army surrounds Jerusalem. And they break down the wall. They ransack the city. They kill thousands of Jews. They burn down the temple. And that, ladies and gentlemen, ends the Levitical priesthood and all the animal sacrifices that some of you have been reading in the book of Leviticus. Ended right there, AD 70. And somebody says, does that mean God's done with Israel? Well, anybody who's been under my ministry for at least two months, you know exactly where I stand on this. The answer is God is far from done with Israel. You know why? Because God is a promise keeper, he's not a promise breaker. God's far from done. So what does that mean? 
That means he's gonna keep his covenants. I don't have time to explain all of it. Go to gotquestions.org, type in Abrahamic covenant, read about it. Type in Davidic covenant, read about it. Type in new covenant. God promised that to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he will keep his promise. What's gonna happen? It's prophesied in the Old and the New Testament that when Jesus Christ comes back, Israel, he's our Messiah. And they will submit to him and turn to him in repentance and faith, and God will fulfill his word to Israel. In the meantime, you need to know that we're in the age of grace. And so right now, what is God doing? He's focusing in on the church. He's focusing in on those who have Jew and Gentile embraced Christ. Their sins are forgiven by the blood of Christ and they're producing the fruit that the Father desires. And to that group, Peter now writes, we'll jump back up to verse four, and now from now till I say amen, it's all about good news, all right? So bad news, that's done. Let's look at the good news. If you're looking at 1 Peter 2, verse four, can you say amen? All right, so as you, church, Christian community, come to him, Jesus, a living stone, he's alive, rejected by men, sure, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like, what kind of stones? Thank you, God, for causing us to be born again. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as, number one, a spiritual house, to be, number two, a holy priesthood. And what do priests do? They offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's a mouthful, but here's the main point, the next point. To the church, Jesus is a stable stone, a stone of stability. Are you building your life on him? You can rely on him. You can count on him. Listen, you can have a personal relationship with him. You don't need to take verses out of context and claim those for your own personal agenda. Just be done with that. That's fake Christianity. Build your life on Jesus Christ. If you do, as you do that, you'll see how strong he is, how stable he is, that he'll never leave you or forsake you. He'll be with you in the storm. He'll never give way. He'll never shift. I, I'm, I'm you know, kind of emphasizing this because I know there's people in the room. You gotta give your life to Jesus, like for real. Now, when Jesus was here on earth, he looked at his disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, right, alive from the dead. Others say you're Elijah. Others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked the most important question anybody could ever ask anybody, and I just want you to take spiritual inventory, answer this in your heart alone between you and God. Jesus said, and I quote, who do you say I am? And I love it, love it, love it. Peter just blurts out, right? This is, this is Peter. He's always just, blah, right? Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. And he goes, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I love it, why? Because Peter was willing to say what none of those leaders of Israel were willing to say, and that is that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. He is the Son of the living God. This is the most important thing, right here, right now. This is it, Jesus. Why in the world have we put him on the back burner and gone on with our lives? with our agenda, 
Lord, here's my agenda. Bless my agenda. Are you kidding me? We need to find out his agenda because he's the Christ, the son of the living God. God showed up on earth. What are we doing? And so, hey, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is grinning ear to ear, right? And I want you to see how the Lord responds. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood. This is not religion. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but who? My My father, divine revelation, who is in heaven. And he says, and you, I tell you, you are Peter Petros, that's the um, masculine gender, and on this rock, Petra, feminine gender, I will build my church. Look at that, I will build my church. There's five words, that's a promise that I have claimed hundreds of times in 16 and a half years since my wife and I and our three daughters planted this church way back in 2004 Standing on this promise, I will build my church. I love it. On a rainy weekend, I will build my church. Right? During a pandemic, I will build my church. If a bunch of Christians decide I'm just gonna be apathetic, I will build my church. I'll send some runners, run with the runners. If a thousand pastors mess up and fall into sin, guess what? Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell, they're on the defensive, shall not prevail against it. Now when you look at the original language, there seems to be a play on words, and I know there's this big controversy. A lot of people say the church is built on Peter. I'm sorry, I disagree. No, I think what's going on here is a play on words. In other words, you are Peter, Petros, a stone, and on this Petra, this rock, this cliff, this, this large stone, I'm gonna build my church. I saw one author, he said that the Petra is a foundational boulder, all right? So Jesus was not saying, um, I'm gonna build my church on Peter because a Petros is just a stone. He's saying, I'm gonna build my church on the Petra, the foundational border, okay? So what in the world is the Petra? What is the rock? What is the foundation of the church? It's not Peter, it's what Peter said. That you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And so the church isn't built on Peter, it's built on Christ, who like a giant rock is strong. He's steadfast, he's sure. He's somebody you can rely on, you can count on. Listen, he'll never fail you. Just give your life to him. He'll show up. And he will never shift, he'll never give away. And so Christ is the stone of stability. It's time to apply the message, are you building your life on him? Because here's what I know, there's a storm coming. It's not if it comes, there's a storm coming. In fact, there's lots of metaphorical life storms that are coming to all of our lives. Like tragedy, difficulty, death, illness, people hurting us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Everything that we live through because we live in a fallen world. And my concern is this. If you're not building your life on Christ, are you gonna survive the storm? Jesus said at the end of Matthew chapter seven, very clearly, 
as he was wrapping up the greatest sermon he ever, that anybody ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, he said that if you hear my words and obey my words, it'll be like you building your house on a rock and the rains are gonna come down. Remember singing this in Sunday school? The floods come up, the wind blows and beats on the house, but guess what? If you've built your life on me, hearing my words, doing my words, then you're gonna survive the storm. You're gonna stand. But then he said, but if you don't, if you're just hearing it, just playing churchianity, checking a box, right, and you're not living this stuff out in the power of the Holy Spirit, then when those rains come and those floods come up and the wind blows and beats on the house of your life, you're gonna fall. And he says, great will be the fall of it. Why? Because you're, you're on sand. It's like building a house on sand is what the Lord says. And so if we wanna survive the storms of life, we've got to, application time, build our lives on Jesus. Not just say it, live it. What does that mean? Let's get real practical here. That means that if you're married, man, you gotta build your life. If this is the, the, the word of Christ, and it is, okay? So what is the rock? It's Jesus and his word, cornerstone. Well, if you're, if you're married, man, you gotta take the brick of your marriage and you need to set that thing right aligned up, measured up with the cornerstone, and you need to build your life, your, your marriage, on Christ and his word. And not just that, but your family and your kids. And not just that, but your career. And not just that, but your personal life. I don't wanna say anything else because I'll be down in the pit. <laughs> Right, but, but listen, I know this is radical, but time's running out and either we're going to see him or he's coming to see us. So none of us are perfect. You guys know that, right? None of us are perfect, far from it. We're all sinners in need of a savior, but here's what we can do. We can resolve today that every single decision I make about my marriage and my kids and my career and my personal life, I am gonna line it up with the principles of the word of God. And that'll be a foundation in my life. That'll be a foundation of my life that will never shift or give way. And so as true believers, I'm almost done, but please stay with me to the end. I want you to see how valued you are. Look at verse five as we continue with the good news. Writing to the Christian community, he says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. All right, so what does that mean if you're taking notes? Christians are God's spiritual house. How many of you guys know the church is not a building? It's a people. So if you're driving down 25th Street and you look to your right as you're heading south or whatever direction that is and you see this building, don't say, well, there's the church. Because part of the bad English, that ain't the church. God does not dwell in buildings it's not like, you know, during the week, his presence is like hovering in this room. Ooh. No, he lives in you. He lives in me. We're the church. 
And so when someone turns to Christ in repentance and faith, they become a living stone in God's spiritual house. What does that mean? That means that they're extracted from the world's pit of depravity. And by God's grace, he blows his life born again into that living stone. And then he takes the living stone, he spiritually cements it into his holy house, brick by brick, person by person. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing that God is doing in the new covenant age. It's an awesome thing. I want you to see what Paul says about it. Look at what Paul, you are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, but, but who's the real bigwig here? <laughs> who's the real, the cornerstone? Yeah, Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a, here it is, holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God, are you kidding me? By the Spirit. And so under the old covenant, God's presence was in the temple. Under the new covenant, he's in us. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. You're God's house. But it gets even better. There's, you know, remember this? Wait, there's more, right? Look at verse five. You're not just a spiritual house. He says, you're also a holy priesthood. The priesthood of the believer. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That means that Christians are God's, not just holy house, but holy priesthood. Just for a second, turn to your neighbor, look at him right in the eye and say, you're a priest. Go ahead, just do it. I know it's uncomfortable, who cares, right? Say, <laughs> so you're a priest. It's true. This is the priesthood of the believer. This is one of those doctrines as Protestants, man, we believe with all our hearts. You don't have to go to school for eight years to become a priest. You're already a priest. And so it's a beautiful thing when you think about this because the old covenant is gone, the new covenant has come. So no longer do a certain group of men from the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron carry out their priestly duties in the tabernacle or temple. No, those days are gone. Animal sacrifices are gone, why? Because John the Baptist saw Jesus and he goes, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then Jesus, God's Lamb, is hanging on the cross and he cries out, it's finished, and he dies. And what happens exactly that moment, according to the Gospel of Matthew, the veil of the temple ripped from top to bottom, revealing the most holy, the holy of holies, where God's presence under the old covenant used to dwell above the mercy seat of the ark between the cherubim. What is God saying? I'll quote it to you from Hebrews 10:19. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. We have direct access as priests straight into God's presence. We don't need a mediator. Jesus is our mediator. Straight into his presence as our daddy. And so we don't need the Levitical priesthood. We're the holy priesthood. So we enter into God's presence by the blood of Jesus and we offer spiritual sacrifices. Okay, so what does that look like? What kind of sacrifices, priest, do you offer, do I offer? Well, Paul says, under the new covenant, 
You're, you're not offering animals, come on. You're offering your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or your spiritual act of worship. And then not only that, the author of Hebrews says, you're offering your praise. And so we should continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. God says, hey, I like that sacrifice and good deeds. And so the author of Hebrews also says, hey, let's do good, let's share what we have. So, so what, this is what it means, church family. If you this week see a need, just go meet the need. And don't be a Pharisee and blow a trumpet so everybody knows you're doing it. You don't need to tell anybody. Just meet the need as the Spirit leads. And God says that's a spiritual sacrifice. And then the gospel ministry. Paul says, when I share my faith and the Gentiles come to Christ, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, I'm doing my priestly duty, sharing the gospel. And financial gifts, when Paul received the gifts from the church of Philippi, he said, quote, they're a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Okay, so we're priests, the priesthood of the believer, and we're offering our bodies, our prayer, our praise, our good deeds, our gospel ministry, our financial gifts, and if they're done through Jesus Christ, God says, I accept. He breathes in, man, that's a fragrant offering. And we're just sharing with you guys what it means to be under the new covenant. And so in conclusion, Christ is our rock. To Israel, stumbling stone. The church, made up of Jew and Gentile, who come to Jesus as the cornerstone, a stable stone. I close with this. Please answer this honestly in your heart. How do you relate to the rock? Listen, if you disregard him and his word, you're like, no thank you, I don't need Jesus. Eventually, he's gonna become a stone of stumbling. You are gonna trip over him. You are gonna perish. And you, because your soul's immortal, are gonna live forever in eternal regret. Don't make that mistake. Be like the thousands of Jews who said yes to Jesus. Thousands of Gentiles that said yes to Jesus. Because if you will go to Christ in repentance and faith and receive him as your Savior and Lord, he'll be your rock. Good times and bad. Stable, strong, and secure. Build your life on Jesus. Amen. Amen.